Father, thank you for all these things that are coming up, but also all the things that you want to reveal to us today. So would you open our minds and our eyes to fix them on you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. So uh, Sunday afternoons and into evenings, my family does this Bible quiz thing where our kids are memorizing scripture. Uh, and it's, it's a good time. Drive them up there. It's awesome. Well, on the way last Sunday, we're on our way up. And out of nowhere, Joya just starts singing this song. And I'm going to tell you the lyrics to the song. And it's a Taylor Swift song. She's all of a sudden like claiming to be a Swifty. And I was like, I don't think you know what that means. But so she starts singing the song. I've never heard of it. And I was like, okay, cool. And this is the song. It, I think I have it. It says, because karma is my boyfriend. Karma is my God. Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend. Karma's a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? Sweet like honey, karma is a cat purring in my lap because it loves me, flexing like a Vegas acrobat. Me and karma vibe like that. Is that a dad fail or I don't know? I emphasize, I'm like, I'm going to tell this part about going up to Bible quiz because it's going to ease the blow that my daughter's singing that song. But I'm like, wait a second. What, like, what do you what say like tell me the lyrics and so she tells me them it, it, it also goes on to say that obviously Taylor Swift is on the good side of karma so she says at one point and I keep my side of the street clean you wouldn't know what I mean like she is the on the good part of it and the, whoever this song is written about one of them anyways yes yeah, probably next it is an ex-boyfriend I don't know which one anyways So I asked Joy a question. I was like, okay, you're singing that song. You're singing about karma. And I asked her, what is the gospel response to that? Of course, I would ask that question. Because all of you would say that. Like, yeah. Uh, But uh, but seriously, karma is a... I've heard lots of people just talk about karma. And it's become just kind of a colloquial saying around you do good things, you get good stuff. You do bad things, you get bad stuff. But... Honestly, what is a gospel response to karma? So we're in the series that we've called Fix Your Eyes. We're starting the year by looking at four eternal truths about God and his character. And these are things that we can rely on. And we can think through if this is true about God, what does this mean? Or what are the implications for my life? Today, we're looking at God being gracious. And if that's true, that means I don't have to prove myself to others. So why do we talk about karma? Because karma is the antithesis or even the enemy of God's grace. So before we get into that, let's, uh, let's make sure we understand what is karma. So this is a complex doctrine. Like many theological stances, there are lots of different people uh, within that faith system or multiple faith systems with karma that have different opinions and perspectives on each of these issues. But overall, there's kind of three components to it. The first one is causality. So an individual does something and it affects 
the way that they end up living. So the in- intentions of an individual affects the individual and the life he or she lives. Like deeds lead to like effects. You do something, there's a result to that, okay? Causality. The second one is ethnicization. Yep, this is the premise. I'm just gonna read this one. This begins with the premise that every action has a consequence which will come to fruition either in this life or in a future life. Thus, morally good acts will have positive consequences whereas bad acts will have negative results. And therefore, an individual's present situation is explained by references to actions in his or her uh, present or previous life. Okay? So, you do good things, it leads to good results, And it could be from previous lives. This is a more Eastern philosophy. So there's the understanding that you have multiple lives. So you may be in a bad situation. And that could be because in a previous life you did something wrong. There's in some uh, societies there's a caste system. There's like there's the high caste system, which means that. Because you're in the higher part of society, you must have done something really good in previous lives. Or if you're in the lower caste system, you've done something bad in previous lives. Therefore, you deserve to be where you are. Okay? So these are the outworkings of karma. And then to the third part is rebirth. This is the rebirths and consequent life may be in a different realm, condition, or form. Karma theory suggests that there's a realm condition of form depends on the quality and the quantity of your karma. So on a surface level, uh, this bridges the gap between good actions and good results, as well as bad actions and bad results. Essentially, what a person reaps in this life can be a consequence of what they sowed in their previous life, according to this. And what, a, what you do now you will reap in the future. And karma can accumulate. The more good you do, the better it's going to look for you. So I was at one time uh, early on when we were planting, I was working at the Museum of Flight. And I was uh, talking with a, a friend of mine. And I don't know what was happening. I think one of the customers did something, said something mean. I'm not sure. But at a, we started this conversation because she said something along the lines of, well, that's karma and it'll come back and get them. You know, like, I'm sure you've heard something like that before. So I was curious and I started asking them questions about karma. And well, that's karma. And, and so she asked like, well, what do you think about that? And my response was, I think karma is a mean dictator that's a heavy bear, burden to bear. I think that it's evil. I, and I don't think I'm strong enough to bear the burden of karma. And I don't think karma sounds like good news at all. I just don't think it sounds like good news at all. Here's the thing. Karma is not a Christian doctrine. It is not in line with the biblical faith. But, Justin, you might say... 
What about Galatians 6, 7, which I know you are asking this very question and you actually knew the reference. So uh, let me just kind of jump ahead for you, okay? What about Galatians 6, 7, which says you reap what you sow? I mean, that's in the Bible, isn't it? You, re- you sow something, you read something. Isn't that the same thing as karma? Well, that's the causality portion of karma. Remember, there's three different components. And on a very, very practical level, this is where karma partially is true. It gets a little bit something right, at least. It's not true, but it gets something right. You eat bad food over and over and over again. It's going to have a negative impact on your life. You do bad things to yourself or there's going to be bad results. That's just causal relationship. That's common sense. But if you add the religious component to karma, in essence, what they're trying to answer is answer the question, how can I be right? How can I be good? And how do I know if I actually am those things? What justifies me as a human? What makes me good? What makes me worthy? It's trying to answer the questions about why things are the way they are today. Why focus on Carmel? Because it is the rival truth to the, the rival quote-unquote truth to what we seek to understand today. And this is where I think Carmel also gets it right. You should get what you deserve. You do certain actions, you and I should get certain results. You break the law, you should get a ticket if you get caught. So don't get caught is what some people say, right? It's not breaking the law if you don't get caught. Right? You and I should get what we deserve. And this is why the gospel of Jesus specifically is so scandalous. Is because we don't only get what we don't deserve, we get far more better than we could ever ever imagine we deserve what we should what we sow but God instead gives us something even better than that so this is where we have this understanding of God's grace so what is grace grace easily defined is unmerited favor It means you not only get what you, you, excuse me, it means that you not only don't get what you deserve, you get what you don't deserve. Let me give you an example that's helped me think this way. Because there's a difference between mercy and grace as well. I want you to imagine you have been going 100 miles an hour in a a child's 20, uh, a school zone, 25, 20 miles an hour, and you unfortunately, and a child's life as a result of it. Like tragic, right? Just I'm, I'm making this really high bar. You go before a judge. What do you deserve? Well, if you believe karma, karma will tell you that you deserve not only the penalty that the judge is going to give you, but it's going to show up later in life or in your next life. Mercy would be if you deserve life in prison, you not getting that. 
Like the judge would just say, hey, I'm going to be merciful and I'm not going to give you what you deserve. That's mercy. You deserve this. I'm not going to give you that. Grace takes it to the next level. Grace in this understanding is the judge who is the one that gives you the judgment over your life. The judge would actually say, actually, I'm not going to extend mercy to you. You Something needs to be paid for justice to be enacted. And so the judge would be like, because I am gracious, I'm going to step in and you're going to be let free and I'm going to pay the penalty for that judgment. Now, if you actually ever heard somebody doing that, you'd be like, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Why would you ever do that? That person's guilty. They deserve that. Like, it's one thing to extend mercy where you let them off the hook. But for you, the judge, to pay the penalty for them, that's next level. That's exactly what the gospel is. The one who is the judge takes on the judgment of those of us who are guilty. The wages of sin is death. What did Jesus do on the cross? Die. Right? And who is Jesus? This is why the understanding of the character of God is so important. Because if Jesus is just some dude that says, I'm God and died on the cross, it means nothing. But if Jesus is the judge that's been part of the triune God from eternity past, it means everything. And God's grace is first found in his character. This, I, don't, I don't want to miss this. God acts because of who he is. If God is the judge, he is just. But if he extends grace... It's because he is the definition of grace. Some people think that grace came about only when Jesus showed up. It's like, hey, we have all these laws and stuff, and they have to live up to these laws in the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament. And then God shows up in Jesus, and now he starts extending grace. That's not biblically accurate. This is what God describes of himself. And if you were part of with us when we went through Jonah, you heard this passage a lot. This is God's revelation of himself. This is God telling Moses on the side of the mountain, this is what is most true about me. And this is Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and what? Gracious. How does God describe himself? compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness or chesed, that um, covenantal love for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgression and sin. And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Notice, God describes himself as merciful and gracious, and yet justice is still enacted. Yeah, this isn't in my notes, but let me go here. There's a lot of conversation and talk around um, grace and justice 
And the idea of why does, why does God have to be just in the first place? And I think it's quite a privileged thing for us to not want God to be just. If you think about the Israelites, if you think about those for who the Israelites were, this small little, little country, this little tribe, that there was really nothing significant about them, except God chose them. And they were surrounded forever by massive empires over and over and over again. Like we love to look up to King David and we rightly should look up to King David and be like, why did God use you? But that's another story. And they were surrounded by enemies. They were, there was always somebody that was more powerful, more big, more, um, and, and more evil than they were. And so they were always protected. They were always being bombarded. They were always kind of the ones, the lower end of the, um, of the totem pole. And you think of their history, even when they were in Egypt, they were enslaved. If you were a people whose identity and self-understanding is found in that you were once slaves and now you have been set free, you're going to have this understanding that you want God to be just on the people that did evil to you. That's not a bad thought. That's a very normal thought. Like this, these people have been evil and violent and done me wrong. There is a desire deep within humanity for God. Won't you be just in this? Won't you do something about my situation? God, I need you to, and you go to the Psalms and you start looking at the Psalms and they're trying to smite your enemies. You're like, dang, aren't you supposed to be gracious? And it's like, well, that makes sense for us to desire to be gracious. Excuse me, desire justice. What doesn't make sense is for us to extend grace. Justice makes sense in the ways of the world. And we should desire God to be just. But the funny thing is, we really like when God is just towards other people and he extends us grace. We really like to say, hey, those people over there, they deserve this. But God, you, you kind of understand how, why and how I did what I did. You knew my motives, so... Like, don't give me what I deserve because there's a lot of reasons why that. But for those people, justice, right? Please don't tell me I'm the only one. We love to see justice extended and we love to receive God's grace. Over and over, God is patient with his people. What does that say? Slow to anger. Decades. He deals with decades and centuries of rebellion. He does visit the iniquities of his people. He does deal with the justice that is deserving. He does act justly. The question is, how has he chosen to do that? 
Because in his grace, he doesn't just say, I'm going to forgive them and do nothing about it. That's mercy. That doesn't work. Something needs to happen. And so what does he do? He dies. What is the gospel of Jesus, Ephesians 2, 8? For, by you, uh, for you are saved by grace through faith. That is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead for us in advance. You have been saved by grace. You don't get what you deserve because Jesus took what you deserve. When we go to the table every single week, the goal is that we are always being reminded of God's grace. We're always being reminded that I was a child of wrath. I was an enemy of God. I was deserving God's justice to be extended to me. That's what sin invites. But God instead chose to take on flesh, dwell among us, lived a perfect life, died sacrificially in our place for our sins because of his love for us. And now we've been adopted into the family of God and you have been fully accepted by the one who should judge you, but now looks at you as a dearly beloved son or daughter of him. You are not accepted by God because you've done enough good things like karma would teach or that self-righteousness would teach. You are accepted, justified, made right with God because of Jesus and Jesus alone. I don't bring anything to the table for God to love me other than my faith and recognition of my need for him. Even without bringing anything to the table, no good actions, no good works, nothing. I'm still fully loved, fully seen, and fully accepted. And this is where I love where Paul goes in Romans 6. Because if you really believe that, if you really understand God's grace, the next logical step is, well, then I can do whatever I want. God's always going to love me. I can keep doing whatever. Right? Romans 6.1, right after Paul does this beautiful explanation of the gospel in Romans 1-5. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Should I keep living any way I want to because I want God's grace to be so magnificent, I'm going to dig myself in such a magical, tragic hole that I want God's grace to be on display. No! Because by his grace, you who were dead are now made alive. So don't live according to the ways of death. Live according to the ways of life. Pastor Charlie Dates says this, God's grace anticipates our rebellion, and yet it ensures our salvation. We don't need to obey the evil slave master that karma teaches we, as God's people, are recipients of this amazing grace. And that now means I am fully accepted. I'm fully loved, fully seen, even in the areas of my life and your life where you don't live up to God's standard. 
God still looks at you in his grace and says, that one's mine. Now, we've talked about grace a lot, but what does this actually mean for us? Like, how should and does God's grace show up in our life? How can I know and how can you know if you are living according to that grace? Because God, if God is gracious, one implication of this is that you no longer have to prove yourself to others. Richard Loveless uh, says this. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. Dang. Let me say that again. Those who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus. How, how, where does God love and accept you? In Jesus. In Christ. In your participation with him. In your identity with him. God loves you and accepts you because you are in Christ. Now if you are no longer sure of that. And you only can think of your present spiritual achievements. God, look what I just did this last week. Don't you love me because of what I just did? What he's saying is those people are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fiercely defensive assertion of their own righteousness. Look what I did. See, look at all my good stuff. And defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness. But envy, jealousy, and other branches of the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) Chew on that for a while. What is it saying? If you don't fully understand how God sees you in his love and grace, you will be trying to prove yourself in all the different ways that you can. Look at all the good that I've done. Don't worry about the bad stuff. Ignore the bad stuff. But look at all this good stuff. That's the prideful assertions. Just you get defensive. No, 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 no. Like, you can't take criticism. The Belgic Confession, which is one of the confessions of faith, states that without justifying faith or receiving God's uh, grace and God's actions making you right with God, that's what justification means. Quote, people never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. If you don't understand God's grace extended to you in Jesus as his saving work that makes you right with God. People, you will not do anything out of love for God as an expression of worship. But you're only going to do it out of self-love or you're going to be so afraid of damnation you're going to act rightly. Now here's the amazing, crazy thing about the faith is that you can be justified by grace and still live this out. For 
many years, this was me. For many years, I, and this isn't only the last couple years that I started to realize this. I, um, the, the deep insecurity in, in me, the radically insecure persons, I was like, yeah, that was, yep, there. I dealt with this uh, belief that in every relationship I was in, I was dealt with. I was never desired. Like people had to put up with me. There was never a longing or a desire or a wanting to be with me. There was always the, uh, we'd rather do something else or rather be with something else or rather have somebody else fill in the blank. But I'd, you're here so that's good enough, right? So that showed up in all of my life, how I led. I mean, I, you talk to Darian about me talking about deserving to quote, be at the table. That was my language for this. Like what, what allows me to be at the table? What allows me to be present with all this? And I was constantly so insecure because I felt like no one wanted that. They just dealt with me. Like, and even in, in this environment, it's like, oh, you don't really want to listen to me. They just have to, so they're going to. They don't really want me to lead and be part of the elder team. They're just dealing with me. It, it ran deep, 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 deep in my heart. And so I had to come to the over and over and over again. It was not me seeing God's grace in his activity on the cross that helped me. It did help me, don't get me wrong. But that was not the focal point. The focal point was God's desire of me. What is God's added towards to you in showing grace? Is he forced to? Does he just deal with you? Does he just like, uh, whatever, I'd rather go do this stuff over there, but this guy's praying and this gal's praying to me, so I'll, I'll actually listen to them. Isaiah 30, verse 18. This is a, a verse that was life-changing for me, and I had to dwell on it a lot. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Waits is another word for that. He longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. Do you hear that? Therefore, the Lord waits or longs to be gracious. Blessed are those who wait or long for him. God desires to show you grace. He waits on high from his throne to show you the grace that you need to be receptive to receiving. He extends, but faith is me receiving it. God doesn't deal with us. God desires us. And if this is true, that means that I don't have to prove myself to other people. I just don't. Uh, this is, I am who I am. You are who you are. God is at work. God is moving. God's giving you the gifts. God's giving you the desires. God's made you who you are. And he's accepted you as you are in his grace. So the question is, whose opinion matters more? His or somebody else's? How do I know if I'm trying to prove myself? 
Tim Chester, uh, who was one of the original authors of these four eternal truths, he asked these questions. So I'm just going to say them. How do I know if I'm trying to prove myself? Do you ever get angry or brood because you want to prove you're in the right? Does your Christian service feel like joyless duty? Why, why that one? Well, you're doing it out of obligation. You're not doing it out of joy. You have to. You don't get to. Do you ever feel the pressure to perform? For, for a long time, this was, a, this was an environment where I had to feel like I had to perform. Uh, that, this one like hit me like a rock, like a ton of bricks. Yeah, oh yeah, because if, you, if you're dealt with not desired, you have to continually perform to show that you deserve to be there. What's the, the gospel is no, you're already fully accepted in Christ. You don't have to prove yourself to God because he's extended you grace. Why do you think you have to prove yourself to other people too? They become more significant in your mind than God has. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to perform. Do you serve others so you can feel good about yourself? Do you serve others to impress people? Hey, look what I did. Does your, don't let your right hand from your left, what are you doing, right? Do you ever serve other people because you can't wait to tell the story of serving that person? Like, oh man, when they hear about how I helped that person, that, they're gonna be so proud of you. Do you look down on others or exaggerate their failings? That's the extending justice, but receiving grace. You're like, okay. Do you worry that you won't make the grade in life? Do you enjoy conversations about the shortcomings of others? I'm sure there's more that can go in on this list. But if we were a people that truly, deeply, profoundly lived into the grace that is extended to us in Christ, there is a freedom that comes with that. Even as we were praying, that word freedom kept coming to my mind, and now I understand why. Because this is a free life. Not, it's a costly life. You, it is, it, you... Jesus says, count the cost of following me. It, it will, you have to lose your life to gain life. But the freedom that comes with being fully accepted by him because of his grace and not worrying about all these other things that you can't control or other people's opinions that don't even matter and probably aren't even thinking about you in the first place. But you know who is thinking about you? The one who's on high longing to be gracious and compassionate to you. God doesn't deal with you. God desires you. So what was the joy set before him that allowed Jesus to endure the cross? Union with you. Not because you're special, but because he's made you special. 
because he loves you, desires you, wants you, sees you, even when you're rebellious. That's scandal. That's grace. That, if we really let that sink into our hearts, if we really believe that, and not just believe it like I can give mental assent to it and check the box. Yeah, God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself with others. But if we really let that truth sink into every part of our motivation, can you imagine what life would be like personally and how we would interact with other people? I don't have to prove myself to you anymore so I can truly love you. I could serve. I could care. I don't have to prove myself to others so I can share my faith freely because this is just what's, this is so good news. I, I have no problem sharing it and being denied. Cool. You can deny me because I'm approved by God. You see how these, these truths motivate us to the mission that God's called us to. So sometimes I don't want to live on mission. Fine, focus on the graciousness of God. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. Fix your eyes on him. Because if we get this, like truly deeply get this and allow the spirit to bring, to unwind all the knots in our hearts and the the blinders that we have in our eyes that stop us from getting this, the people in our lives will be different because we will be a more free-flowing conduit of God's grace and love. There won't be any dams in the way. There won't be any blockages. God's grace will just freely extend because we've experienced it profoundly. So I don't know if you are checking the box on any of those things, how you're trying to prove yourself. But all of us can come to a deeper, more profound understanding of the grace of God. We will, for eternity, become more and more in awe of God's grace. I'm convinced of that. It is an endless search of his goodness and his graciousness. And so today we get just another glimpse of that. Today we just get to take one more step in that direction. We get to receive that grace, not earn it, not deserve it, not live up to it, but receive that grace and just welcome it by faith.